You're listening to the Kingdom Culture Church podcast. To connect with us, hop on social media or go to kingdomculturechurch.com.au. So, just want to say the loudest cheer. Um, it is so cool to be here. If this is your first time to Kingdom Culture Church, um, or perhaps your first time ever to church, I want to let you in on a few secrets. Number one, if you um, do not like anything that you hear from me tonight, you are in, like, there, I have good news for you. Everyone that speaks here and every other week is way better than me, so just come back next week and it'll be 10 times better. And also, if you happen to like what I share tonight, everyone here is way better than me, so just come back next week anyway. So whatever you do, just come back next week. And the, the pastors here... Um, your pastors here are two of the most beautiful, generous human beings I've ever had the chance to break bread with. And every time I get a chance to dance on this platform that you guys have built, it is an absolute honor. So thank you for hosting me tonight. It's a, can we honor your pastors for being... Um, honor them for being great human beings. And I love the fact that um, when we hang out, I can just be a person with you and... Um, have always just felt accepted by you guys as I am. So I love you, I honor you, and I love being your friend. So thank you. Thanks very much. Um, yeah, as the, uh, your pastor said before, married to the love of my life. If you get the choice, marry that person for you. And I have two little girls. So my eldest is Willa. She is four years of age. Now I have a, I've got a, I've got a sore back. And um, my wife, Chloe, lured me into a false sense of romantic romanticism. She used to massage me, you know, when we're engaged, give me good, you know, shoulder rubs. I loved it, like she can massage. Got married, the massages stopped. And I was like, hang on. So this week I was like, come on. So we're driving in the car. I've got my four, four-year-old in the back, got my um, eight-month-old in the back as well. And I'm like, Chloe, can you, can you just give me, like, I'm driving, can you just a little bit of massage there? She's like, no. Nah. And then I was like, I was like, so I'm gonna, I started, I started complaining so my four-year-old could hear it. I'm like, you know, Willa, your mother, she never, like, gives me massages. Like, I'm so sore. Why? And she goes, and then she pipes up, and she goes, Mom, why don't you? And she goes, well, because I'm always meeting your needs and your little sister's needs. I'm meet, meeting everyone's needs. I just don't have the margin to massage, you know, daddy's back. You know, I'm doing everything. I'm cooking for you. I'm cleaning up, you know, doing everything. And it was a pause, and my four-year-old goes, yeah, but you're daddy's wife. And I was like, I, I didn't say nothing. So I'm like, I'm writing that down. If parents, you've got the book, for the funny thing kids say, I'm getting home, I'm writing it down. Remember that. So that was yesterday. No, what day is it today? Sunday. That was Friday. Yesterday, so the day, day after, um, we're at home now. I've trained my four-year-old to walk on my back. She thinks she, she, she thinks she's having a, a game. I'm getting massage. It's brilliant. So I asked her. I was like, "Will I? Can you can you like can you walk on Daddy's back? I need a massage." And she goes. She paused and she said, "If Mummy ain't doing it, then neither am I." So direct quote made the book. Anyway, that's my family. Great. <laughs> I didn't say it. They did. So 2021, how have you gone over the past 12 months? How have you gone? How have you fared through? Because a lot's, a lot's gone on, right? I am not a 
pro at understanding everything about the world. I certainly do not have all the answers for all the problems in the world. But I've lived through what you've lived through. Granted, it's, you can do the comparison thing to often the rest of the world. But the truth is, even something that is global has personal ramifications. And you've all experienced the past 12 months personally. And I wonder how you've fared. Because we have to keep showing up. You have to keep studying and going to work and getting the kids off and, you know, do what you're going to do and volunteering. Like life has to keep grinding. And often we don't have time to pause, catch your breath and go, actually, how have I fared? And how, how am I doing really? And I absolutely love uh, the church. I get the privilege to serve as pastor and I'm always trying to Every chance I get the chance to remember, I pray for them. And I found over the past 12 months, my prayers start, started to change. And starting to look at the toll that all the changes in just how we operate have affected business owners, people even looking for work, people who had dreams of owning houses or buying their first house, people who had honeymoon plans to travel, you know, uh, wedding plans, people hope to have all their family there, <laughs> and started to hear story after story like you would have experienced of disappointment, closed doors, no's, cancellations, you know, and the things that we once thought we had a grip on started to lose a grip off. And I was like, what am I, what am I supposed to pray? Like, do I pray, do I pray COVID away? Do I pray that, you know, the government makes decisions that I think are better than they're making. Like, what am I supposed to pray? So I started praying, God, in the middle of all this, would you give the people I'm responsible for loving as their pastor, would you give them and would you help them to know joy in the middle of all this? Because we often try to find joy on the end of a result, right? Don't we? But that's often referred to as happiness, because happiness is connected to what's happening, and what's happening doesn't make us happy. But yet it seems to be that there's a different idea, which is joy. And so in learning to pray for this, I came across a remarkable account of the cousin of Jesus himself. His name was John. And he, he said, he claimed that he had found the secret to complete joy. Complete joy. And when I read this idea, or at least what he said, his claim on I've found complete joy, it got my attention because I'd often find the idea that joy was linked to an outcome or a result or the right environment. And, but then I start seeing this idea. And as we're going to explore tonight, John found the secret to having complete joy in life and it wasn't linked to any kind of outcome. So tonight I'm hoping together we are all going to learn over the next few minutes the secret to finding complete joy. <laughs> So this is how we're going to figure it out. Now, John, this is what we can best tell from the New Testament gospel accounts of John's life. Um, we got a picture of, of John, what he looked like. This is actually him. <laughs> so, the, so the New Testament explains that John was a recluse. He lived in, um, is this mic feeding back too much for you guys? It's okay. Um, he was a recluse. He intentionally withdrew from, I guess you call mainstream society. He wasn't booted out. He wasn't canceled. He intentionally left 
as you were, the rat race, and he found himself um, essentially in the wilderness, and he had a ministry of baptizing people. And people flocked to him. Jews flocked to him. Gentiles flocked to him. Romans flocked to him to get baptized. And people didn't flock to him because his message was this like, you are loved and you are grace and God is for you. It almost sounded the opposite. It was you are evil. You are full of sin. You need to turn your life around. Get dunked. And they, they flocked to him in their thousands. Quite remarkable. So he had this very, very prominent ministry. And in fact, after him, when Jesus arrived and Jesus was his younger cousin, Jesus even referred to John the Baptist as being the greatest man on the planet. Okay, so this is how significant... John was. And what I find remarkable is um, Scripture goes so far to explain even his diet, how kind of weird it was. Like he ate locusts, he ate honey. Not even vegans would touch his diet. Like they are, <laughs> they are animal products for the vegans in the room. Am, am I right? So, so he, was just, he was a different kind of guy. And here's the thing. When you look at kind of the description, like, uh, talk, you know, the Gospels talk about even what he wore. You know, like he was weird. He, was just, he wasn't part of the normal flow of things. And here's what's remarkable to consider John's life is when we think of a modern day example of what history tells us about John, these are also people who would remove themselves from mainstream society, right? This idea of I want to get out of the rat race, I want to get away from the trimmings of Western consumerism. And, and to, I guess to find this idea of we're looking for a sense of peace and joy and to find it, I've got to get away from the busyness and the noise and I'm going to cancel my social media accounts and I'm, I'm going to just disappear, right? But John, and this is what we're going to learn, John, that wasn't his message. John did not claim to have found complete joy by removing himself or by what he lost and what he gave up. He would argue that he found complete joy based off what he found or who he found and who he trusted in. And so this is where we see John, I guess this, what the text we're going to read tonight we're going to read from John's Gospel. If you're not familiar with uh, the New Testament, it starts with four eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus. John was different to this guy, John the Baptist. He was, that's Jesus' cousin. John, who wrote the text we're about to read from, he was one of Jesus' first followers. And he wrote this many decades after the first three Gospels were written. And so his Gospel is super unique to the others because those others were already circulating. And he was like, I want to give a different take of what no one else has covered and also, he was, an old, he was an older guy at this stage who had the, also the benefit of hindsight. He had time to really think about what do people really need to know about what we saw and what we heard and what we experienced. So this is where you pick up John's gospel. So right at the start of it, in the third chapter, he talks about the account of John the Baptist's ministry. And where this scene picks up is Jesus had just started his ministry. He started baptizing people. And some of John's, John the Baptist's disciples um, heard what Jesus was doing, his ministry was growing. And so they came back and reported this to John. And here's where we pick up the story. Okay, this is John chapter three. It says, they came to John, this is his disciples. And they said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you, and that man is referring to Jesus. He said, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan River, and you can still visit this place today in, in Israel, said, the one you were testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. Now, it's worth noting here, it says the one you testified about, one you testified about. John's whole ministry was to testify about the coming Messiah, was to prepare people for Jesus. And so, but here we have Jesus is now starting to grow in prominence, starting to minister, 
people are going to hear him. And John's disciples are somewhat concerned, like they're worried that Jesus' ministry was now gaining momentum and their ministry seemed to be winding back. Um, in other words, it's like they were viewing Jesus' success now as their demotion. And why this is important to note, particularly in the conversation about finding joy, is this should have been something they should have been celebrating because their, minute, their whole ministry existed to give Jesus platform. Now Jesus was getting platform and they were being essentially deplatformed. They started to panic. And instead of celebrating something that they were building, we now start to see the signs that they were envying the very thing they should have been applauding. But doesn't this highlight a truth that you already know that often for us, we will find our joy is lost when we start criticizing what we should be celebrating. Haven't you found that? I've certainly found it in my life, okay? So I want you to think for a moment because more than ever, we have exposure to what other people are doing. Isn't that right? And I'm not making a, I'm not making a commentary on whether that's good or not. It's just, it is what it is. We see people's lives more than we ever have before. And if you find yourself quickly being quick to criticize everything you see in someone else's life, joy has left the building, as it, as it were. Oh, I really know, the, you know, they've put a filter on. I really know the truth story. They're just, you know, they're just puffing their chest. I really know what's going on. And if you often are just so quick to criticize, joy's gone. If you want to know the secret to joy, you need to flick the script. Practice celebrating things instead of criticizing it. But you know what I feel? This is even the most important thing that we need to do this in. It's towards yourself. Why do we beat ourselves up so much? Why do we find ourselves critic? Listen, if you just practice for one week celebrating what's right about your life instead of just always beating yourself up for what's wrong about your life, I have a hunch, and I think you do too, that maybe your joy would not go backwards and might start to get bigger. Okay? So just practice that. We do, I mean, you are a pro. Listen, if beating yourself up was ever going to work, it would have worked by now. It just hasn't. It hasn't worked on me. And I'm assuming, I have a hunch, it hasn't worked for you yet either. So maybe we need to flip the script. And so, so we find here John's disciples, uh, their whole mission was to give Jesus platform, right? That's why they existed. But somewhere along the way, they started believing the lie that Jesus existed to give them platform. And the moment that their platform started diminishing, they started panicking. Now, if you're not a Jesus follower here, if you're someone who's not even sure if you even believe in God, and you, hopefully everyone's got questions about that, but wherever you are in your journey, listen, before, before you've come to know Jesus, and I guess I would say a personal way and to put your trust in Him, you need to know first and foremost, Jesus is totally for you. In fact, he is so for you. He hasn't just done it in rhetoric and in word. He proved it by giving his life for you. That's, that's huge, right? But for those of you that have made the step to put your trust in Jesus, the moment you do that, it's no longer about you. Your life now exists to, to shine a light on the light of the world. And as Jesus would say, to let your light shine that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And the moment we start believing the lie that Jesus exists to give us platform, joy disappears. And if you're finding your faith frustrating and your Christian walk void of joy, 
I've at least found it's true in my life. I've been looking for where is my platform? Where is my opportunity? Why isn't the light on me? And the moment I flip the script and go, hang on, I have all the opportunity to give the light to Jesus in my life and to celebrate what he has done for me, not just complain about what is yet to have been done for me. It's amazing how joy returns. So, okay, so this is, this is like the panic that John's disciples have. They're like, you know, his ministry is growing, ours is shrinking, and I want to learn. John's response here is amazing, and we're going to pull it apart tonight and hopefully learn how to have complete joy. Here's how John replies. <laughs> he says to them, a person can receive only what is given them from the Heavenly Father. Notice this. It packs a punch. A person can receive only what is given them from God. In other words, I think he's making this point that you and I have limits. He's saying, listen, you can only receive what's given to you from your Heavenly Father. That's, that's, That's your lane to run in. You and I have limits. This isn't complicated. You, you know this. Maybe you just haven't thought of it in this term. But let's break this down for a moment. You, we all have health limits. Okay? I wish my back and my... I just wish things were different. But we're, we all have different health limitations. We have family limits. Okay? Like if you're single here, there's great opportunity there, but you're also limited in certain activities. If you're married, listen, if you're married, there's, there's great freedom. But also when you're married, there's limits. There's one for life. That's it. It is the idea, but there's limits, okay? If you don't have children, yeah, there's limits. If you do have children, there's even more limits. The more children you have, the more limits you have. We have, look, we have financial limits. Listen, you could be the most wealthiest financial person in the room here, but even you know your resources have limits. We all have intellectual limits, man. Listen, we all can't at the same time be the most brilliant person in the room at economics, philosophy, theology, apologetics, political science, creating memes. You can't be a genius at everything all the time. You and I have intellectual limits. We have physical limits. We have time limits. Man, we have time limits. Like this is massive. No matter how organized you are, once the day is gone, we never get it back. We have time limitations. We have opportunity limitations. We even have personality limitations. Listen, do you realize your personality has, is, is your secret source to making a difference in the world, but it also provides limits? For example, I'm like a, I'm like a feeler. I'm a feeler, right? That's my personality. My, and so that makes people that are like all in touch with their emotions, that makes us good at like, um, um, like communicating. It's about it. Okay. So you limit, we, we're limited. And listen, the reason this is important to know, the reason this is important to know is because limits are behind all loss. Our limits are behind all the loss we experience. We cannot be or do everything and anything we want. We can't control every outcome. And so this leaves you and I with a choice. And the choice is when we discover our limitations in life and where we don't have everything, we either fight that feeling or lament that feeling. And it usually leads us to feeling miserable and that, that, that horrible gut sense that we're never enough. Or you do what people who have found joy and who are truly happy have learned. Happy people know, people have discovered the secret to complete joy. And John would tell us that happy people know how to embrace their limits. 
to embrace their limits. So let's talk about this for a moment, embracing our limits. What does it mean to embrace our limits? Embracing our limits, I've learned, is one of the most freeing decisions we could ever make. It is being comfortable in our own skin. It's quitting the competition. It's accepting our imperfections. It's not having to be as good as everyone else. It's recognizing a weakness and surrendering it. Now, to clarify, let me just explain what I'm not saying, what, we, what embracing our limits is not. Embracing our limits, it's not celebrating our limits, okay? Embracing our limits is not calling something that's broken not broken. Embracing our limits is not calling something that is ill healthy. Embracing our limits is not calling something that's dysfunctional, functional. <laughs> and it's certainly not an excuse for laziness or lack of motivation or commitment, okay? Listen, I would brought up what I'd call like the self-esteem movement, where I, I, I bought into this whole idea that you can do anything and you can be anyone. Like the sky's the limit. Go for it. Nothing's gonna hold you back. Like you can be anyone you want. Speak your truth. Accept you are the way you are. You are beautiful just as you are. Listen, that sounds so good. I thought it sounded so good, but I've quickly learned this is an utter lie. It is PR. It is marketing. The way I know that is, same way you know it, it's self-denial. Right, it's, it's like it's a self-defense mechanism. And I don't, this isn't a criticism because we do it, it's our innate nature. It's like a self-defense mechanism to defend against fear and shame. And why do we do it? At least I know I do it. It's because we don't wanna believe that we're bad or that there's something wrong with us. No one wants to admit that. The last thing I wanna do. So instead of saying, yeah, there's something wrong, it's like, I'm perfect the way I am. Okay, but what embracing our limits do, this is so liberating, okay? Embracing our limits is a pathway to liberty, to freedom, and perhaps even joy. What it means is this. When you embrace your limits, and hear me, because this is kind of the thing. Embracing your limits is putting them, your limits, in their proper place. It's like deplatforming them. It's not letting your limits be the defining characteristics of your life, your vision for your life, your goals in life. When you embrace your limits, you choose to make the most of what you do have rather than lament what you don't. When you embrace your limits, you recognize you can use your weaknesses, oh man, this is good, to glorify God. Because we, I, I fall in this trap all the time thinking it's only the areas I'm strong that God's interested in. Man, God can, get, God can be glorified. God can be honored. You can serve God even in the areas where you're weekend. And embracing our limits, this is perhaps the most important thing, is recognizing our need for God. Because if we live in the area of all of our strengths, God, I'm happy for God to take a seat on the bench. I got it covered. But when you, when you embrace your limits, you go, God, I, I actually need you in my life. So John goes on. Next verse, he says this. Listen, he says, you yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. Listen, I'm telling you, joy is waiting to rush into our lives the moment we recognize we are not the Messiah. Okay. And the moment, listen, this is super important. The moment you lose your own Messiah complex is the moment you open up the door for more joy in your life, okay? Listen, the reason John had to say this, John had to say this to people regularly because he was a big deal. He was significant. He was making a huge impact in his generation. And so people would go up and go, hang on, I know you're saying you're preparing the people for the Messiah, but are you just being humble? Like 
you're really the Messiah, aren't you? Like, he's like, no, I'm not. I'm not the Messiah. And what he does is when we learn this, when we recognize that we don't have to walk around with the Messiah complex, you lose the need, okay, to be the answer for every single need. And you stop putting that expectation on, this is even more important, stop putting that expectation on others as well to be the source of your joy. Happy people know, and people who have discovered joy, like John would say, know that they are not responsible for everyone else's happiness, and nor do they put that own expectation, that expectation on to others, all right? In other words, I think John is trying to say this, know who you're not. We often hear, know who you are, know who you're not. John didn't grieve what he, when he didn't live up to other people's expectations. We don't hear John going away going, I wish I was the Messiah, right? He doubled down on who he was. In other words, he embraced his limits. You and I don't need to be the best or have the best to have joy. <laughs> you don't need to be first to be content and you don't need to have it all to have joy. Let me say that again. You don't need to have it all to have joy. And then if he couldn't be any clearer about it, he doubles down even further on his point and he uses an illustration. Let's read it in the next verse. So he says, listen, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. This is, a, this is like a visual illustration of his point. The, bi- the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom, now we have a, a word for that term, the friend of the bridegroom. What's the word? Best man, okay. So the friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and he is... <laughs> Full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. This is super important. So he's saying, I'm full of joy, not because I'm the center of attention, not because I'm the groom. Because if you've been married here, if you're engaged here, wedding day, arguably a pretty good day, okay? John's saying, I'm just, I'm just the best man. And I'm full of joy. Now, I don't know if any of you got married this year or been, you know, have plans to get married or recently or anyone, anyone here ever been a best man or maid of honor or whatever? Okay, listen. So I'm in a family of um, four, there's four boys in my family and we made a pact with one another that each of us would have a turn of being another's best man. So I know, oh sweet, right? You'd think. <laughs> I haven't met my brothers. So the two oldest, David and Ashley, and then me and my younger brother, Cameron. So Ashley gets married first, being the oldest, Dave's best man. And it's back in the olden days, okay? So it was a funny, like, who's, who's got the rings? And my brother Dave was like, oh, I don't have it. Who's got it? And went down her and the last guy had it. Oh, funny, funny, here's the rings, right? <laughs> Someone's like, I've got to change up my plan. It's actually not a good idea. I was planning best. That's a horrible best man joke. So when my brother David got married, Ashley's turn is like, I'm going to actually make this good. So they're all lining up there. My dad was our pastor growing up. He married us all. And dad goes, you know, who's got the ring? And Ashley did the same thing. <laughs> and goes down the line. We're like, <laughs> we're like actually, none of us, ha- I don't have it. You don't. And, and it starts getting awkward because no one had it. And Ashley goes, ah, takes off his boots, takes off his sock, and out of the sock drops the rings. Nice. Very romantic. Okay. Now, I'm standing there to the side, just watching, and I'm thinking, I'm next. Like, I'm the next to get married, and it's going to get worse. Sure enough, fast forward 20 years, it's my turn to get married, and felt like it. And, 
And my little brother Cam's standing there, and he's the worst best man ever. And already he'd ruined the day because he had these long ringlets, right, these long curls, and he just got scissors to his fringe and went chop. So this box, king of the mods, just straight up. $8,000 down the drain of photography, right? And then Cameron was included. It's horrible. So, so anyways, I'm there, and, you know, so he's got my back. I'm there holding Chloe's hands. And um, Dad goes, you know, who's got the rings? And Chloe looks over, like, giving him, the, like, the angry eye. And they're doing the, and then he goes for the shoe. And Chloe looks at him, and he's like, just kidding. She doesn't. And then he tucks his hair behind his ears. He had two sleeper earrings. The rings were dangling from the earrings. So, pop, pop. I swore on that day in front of my families and friends and before God and the Commonwealth of Australia that I will get him back. Next minute, it's his wedding. They got married on a beautiful farm. I'm sitting there thinking, I got it. So I'm standing over his shoulder. They're getting married. I'm just watching. It's a beautiful moment. And the moment comes, who's got the rings? And Cam looked over his shoulder at me because he knew something was coming. I was like, what? I walk off behind a tree, come back with a shovel over the shoulder, walk in front of the bride and groom. How you doing? Start to dig the dirt. I reach down to a pile of dirt, mesh up all the dirt. Out came the rings. This guy. I was just the best man. In other words, I was full of joy. And I was just the best man, okay? Listen, this is what John's trying to say. Did you read that? He goes, listen, the friend who attends and listens for him, he's full of joy. And this is what John is saying, the secret to you and I finding complete joy. Listen, John did not view himself as the center of his own world, okay? The source of John's joy being full was Jesus taking center stage. And John's stepping back saying, there he is. Jesus is in the center, I'm off to the side and I am stoked about it. The pressure is off me from being the source of my own joy. The pressure is off me from having to perform. Jesus takes center stage. So my question to us is, what place have you given Jesus in your life? Now, if you're a Christian here, come on, because yeah, Jesus is in your life, but where? Because sometimes he can be off in the margins, right? We can sometimes, you know, relegate him to emergencies, Jesus is secure. If that's the place you want to give him, he'll happily just sit there and twiddle his thumbs. But doing that is the equivalent to having the best player on the team benched the whole time and you're wondering why you're not winning and your star player's there going, let me in. Let me be in the center. And if you're wondering where your joy is, maybe chasing it in your job, maybe chasing it in a relationship, you're putting all this expectation on everything else to take center stage when there's only one person who can handle that kind of attention and it is the Messiah Jesus Christ. And he is the source of our joy. Okay, so I gotta finish. I realize I gotta finish. So John continues. I gotta wrap this up. John continues. He says, Listen, that joy is mine. I love this. He says, It is now complete. It's complete. In other words, there was something missing. My, I was successful. I had people following me. I had people talking about me. I had, was running my path, running my lane. But now that Jesus has taken center stage, that missing piece is now complete. John was able to have complete joy because he learned how to embrace his limits. 
And when you're finding your limits or lamenting your limits, you keep this, this is so important, you keep the spotlight on your limits. And you keep circling around your limits. You keep circling around where things are wrong or things are broken or things aren't working how you want. You keep the spotlight on them. But when you embrace your limits, what you do is you push your limits to the fringes of your life. And then you're able to put Jesus in center stage and He then fills everywhere that you lack. And instead of putting all this unrealistic expectation on yourselves and the areas where you wish you were better, I'm I'm not complete, I'm not complete. Jesus is like, I will complete it. And your joy can be complete when you put me in the center. You no longer have to identify, victimize, or ostracize yourself because of your limits. And your joy is no longer in something that is temporary or fleeting.